Good morning. My name's Mike, and I'm excited to share God's Word with you this morning. Uh, last week, if you were here, Tim covered an entire chapter of Acts. Yeah! And so this week, I'm like, I'm going to cover an entire chapter of Acts. So if you would turn in your Bible or your app to Acts chapter 7, and uh, we are going to be looking at that this morning. If you want to use the Bible in the pew back in front of you, it's on page 1061. And uh, wait a minute. That's a little long. Which... It raises the question, what do you do when there's a passage of Scripture that's kind of bigger than you'd like to handle at one time? And one of the answers, and we we often do it, is we, even though it kind of goes together, we take chunks, we study them, and we preach them. But we're going to do something a little differently today. We're trying to understand what Luke is communicating by including this crazy long sermon. It's the longest sermon in Acts. And... uh, I want you to understand, Luke's not just mindlessly dictating everything that happens. You get that? There's a bunch of stuff that happens that's not in this book. And he's picking details. He's telling stories because he has a purpose as he's guided by God. How do we discover that? Well, let me set us up for this chapter with a few notes. Uh, Main characters... Stefan, as Tim called him last week, I tried to practice that way. I I don't see it happening, so if you hear me say Stephen, I hope you'll understand who I'm talking about. Um, He's, in the last chapter, been named one of the ministry leaders who's responsible for overseeing the daily distribution of food to some widows in the gathering of believers. And our passage today will begin with the high priest asking Stephen, is this true? In last week's passage, Tim talked about Acts 6.13. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. Breaking the law. Okay, so against this place and against the law. So Stephen is charged with speaking about Israel's temple, where worship of God is centered, where sacrifices for sin are offered. He's also charged with speaking against the law that God gave through Moses to the people of Israel that forms part of their national identity. So today, we're going to see how Stephen, this grace-filled, power-demonstrating, widow-caring, wonder-working, Jesus-speaking deacon, replied to those two charges. And we're going to have a reading on video this week because it's lengthy. Okay, it's uh, put together by a ministry called Streetlights, so it's got a little different voice than mine sounds like, and it uses a translation we don't normally use, the New Living Translation. That's to help us understand, if you want to debate Bible translations, I invite you to email Pastor Tim at mike at covalley.com. <laughs> the reading itself It it covers a lot, but far from all of Israel's history, and it's going to take eight minutes, okay? So, there will be text on the screen, as well as a few notes being jotted and some cheesy felt board pictures. So, then I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk much more briefly than I usually do. So, I'll see you then, and I'm going to be drinking a cup of coffee because this is the longest sermon in Acts, and somebody dies. So... 
I want to get through this and I want to take this seriously. The main thing I want you to think about as we hear this passage together, how does Stephen respond to the charges that he speaks against the temple and the law of Moses? Because it's hard to figure for a while. Follow along in your Bible, switch your app to the NLT if you want. Let's go for it. Acts chapter 7. Stephen addresses the council. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these accusations true? This was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, Leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land, where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, God said. And in the end, they will come out and worship me here in this place. God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at that time. So when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day. And the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob, and when Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs of the Israelite nation. These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles, and God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom so that Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. But a famine came upon Egypt and Canaan. There was great misery, and our ancestors ran out of food. Jacob heard that there was still grain in Egypt, so he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. The second time they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers, and they were introduced to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent for his father. Jacob and all his relatives to come to Egypt, 75 persons in all. So Jacob went to Egypt. He died there, as did our ancestors. Their bodies were taken to Shechem and buried in the tomb Abraham had bought for a certain price from Hamor's sons in Shechem. As the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. This king exploited our people and oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. At that time, Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. When they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and action. One day, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. So Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day, he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting. He tried to be a peacemaker. Men, he said, you are brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? He asked. Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard that, he fled the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. There his two sons were born. 
40 years later, in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with terror and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Now go, for I am sending you back to Egypt. So God sent back the same man his people had previously rejected when they demanded, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and savior. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and through the wilderness for 40 years. Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness, when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what has become of this Moses who has brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf, and they sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing they have made. Then God turned away from them and abandoned them to serve the stars of heaven as their gods. In the book of the prophets, it is written, was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No, you carried your pagan gods, the shrine of Moloch, the star of your god, Raphon, and the images you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far away as Babylon. Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory. And it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asks the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, 
receive my spirit. He fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Just another happy passage. Long and heavy, isn't it? I'm calling this sermon Can't Handle the Truth because Stephen spends this whole encounter speaking the truth, and Stephen can handle the truth, but these hearers want nothing to do with the truth. They're happy with a lot of the facts that he relays, but when he explains how they relate to the current situation, whoo! So, pause with me. And let's bow, and let me just ask God for his help. God, I thank you for the reading of your word. Would you please continue to teach us from your word for the sake of your son, for the sake of his gospel. Help me and help all of us to handle your truth. Amen. All right, so Stephen, as you recall, is answering the question, is it true you're always speaking against this holy place and against the law? But he doesn't talk about the holy place or the law at all. He starts with Abraham, the father of the Hebrews, who didn't live in the land where the temple would be built, but was called out of one. God calls Abraham from his own land and his own family. He gives Abraham no land, and he has no children until outrageously late in life. It seems like an odd deal. Furthermore, God tells Abraham, your descendants are going to be enslaved for hundreds of years before they come back to the land. Wow. Now, it's interesting. None of this story bothers the Sanhedrin who are listening, the religious leaders who are listening. But Stephen is already on to what they think, and he's able to say things that they agree with. Worship requires owning the land, so he emphasizes when people are in the land. Worship requires the temple, thus their sensitivity about it, and worship requires the law. Father Abraham has exactly zero of those, okay? He doesn't own anything unless a cemetery that he purchased in the land counts. In verse 8, Stephen relates one more thing that the audience would agree with. God's people are circumcised as a covenant with God. And uh, all the gentlemen cross their legs. And the, the takeaway there is that worship requires the right people. You've got to belong. No star-bellied sneeches or no... Anyway, Stephen has a different assumption. At the end of chapter 6, here's what Luke said. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen knows the same facts these men do. But what Luke is doing by setting up chapter 7 with the end of chapter 6 is pointing us to the reality that Stephen knows something, actually someone, that they don't want to know, and it changes everything for him. Stephen lives in the truth, it shows in his face, it shows in his words, and it shows in his actions. All right, now, after Abraham, Stephen kind of skips a couple of generations, and he gets to Joseph. It's a highlights kind of thing here. Who appreciates Joseph? Well, not his brothers, who are among the right people. No, their response to him is envy. They envy him. They sell him as a slave. And so the uncircumcised Pharaoh of Egypt comes to know and appreciate Joseph in a way his brothers refuse to. Now, 
these fathers of Israel were often not in the land. They haven't even yet built a pop-up worship tent, okay, let alone a temple. They have not yet been given the law. All these patriarchs that the Sanhedrin would venerate, no, not, not in the land, no law, no temple. The nation of Israel, furthermore, remains in Egypt. They're stuck. And when they are oppressed instead of welcomed eventually, God preserves and specially equips Moses with unusual education and unusual skills. But when Moses tries to help his people, how do they treat him? Suspicion, hostility. They don't want his help. It's almost like they're happy fighting amongst themselves. So Moses flees to another land, and half a lifetime later, he encounters an angel, a burning bush, and the voice of God. And I don't know about you, I call those Tuesday. No, I don't. I'm 0 for 3 on those three things myself, okay? Now, when God addresses Moses, he doesn't say, I'm the God of Canaan or I'm the God of Israel. He's the holy God whose representation of a bush can't be approached with a guy who's wearing sandals. Those dirty sandals have to be removed is how set apart this God is. But he's also the personal God who calls out his relationship with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses. And God sent these redeemers, Joseph and Moses, and they were both rejected. His brothers may be circumcised, but they reject Joseph. When God sent Moses, his brothers reject him as well. And God's plan is to redeem his people But their, and I'm going to say our instinct, is to resist him and his chosen redeemers. Acts 7.35 says this, This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Who made you? Yeah, God made him. But by nature, we value our freedom more than we value God's plan of redemption. I want to do my own thing. I want to resist what God has for me. It's I keep falling where gravity takes me, and that's where gravity takes me. God led them out of Egypt, through the sea, through the wilderness, through Moses. Moses receives the law from God, and as he comes down the mountain, you might say that the people collectively give Moses and God a finger in return, and they're not saying they're number one. God was present. He was there. He made himself known to all the people, and they didn't want him. They wouldn't obey him. They wanted to turn back to Egypt. They had a craft fair. They made an idol. They sacrificed to it. God being accessible does not mean that God is being pursued. Now, Stephen sort of quotes from Amos chapter 5 to say, from the time of Moses to the time the nation was defeated and shipped off to Babylon, Israel kept wandering from worshiping God. Even when the right people did have a tabernacle, a portable place of worship that they had, you worshiped other gods, Stephen is saying. That infidelity to the one God, it continued when you were in the land, 
even when you had Solomon's impressive, ornate temple. And he winds up the sermon by pointing out Isaiah's message about God's dwelling place, Isaiah 66. This is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? I love the guy's inflection on his voice there. Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word, which is what Stephen says Moses did before the bush, and here we are. And Stephen at this point does something I saw when I was a kid. There, we're on the playground and a, a, a boy has a sweater on and there's like what we call an Irish pennant, a loose thread, and he pulled and the, it started unraveling. It was the coolest thing. It, he went from sweatered to unsweatered in like no time, and he couldn't stop himself. Uh, Stephen's doing this with his argument. They, they've been on board so far. Yep, that's our history. Yeah, you know, God is good. He put us in charge. But then he's reminding them, Israel's fathers weren't always in the land, so the land can't be all that. The temple didn't make people more faithful. So that's not all that either. God doesn't need a temple even more fundamentally. Uh-oh. Israel never kept the law. And you, Stephen says to his hearers, like the law-breaking levels, rebels of the past, have already rejected the Redeemer God sent you, just like you rejected those who prophesied his coming. <sighs> that Redeemer had walked among them, and they said, no, you're, you're bad, you're wrong. And he, they treated him just the way they treated his predecessors. Oh, but they get it. They get it. You're going to point this all at us. And they are furious and they gnash their teeth, which sounds kind of cartoonish, except for what happens next. And it's a horrible situation. But Stephen, being dragged out of the city, being pelted with stones, he continues to see God. Verses 55 and 56, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Side note, Jesus is standing. He is active in this situation. He isn't admiring Stephen. He's empowering Stephen. All right, that's, that was free. Good Friday is less than two weeks away. Stephen's source of strength, it contrasts with somebody I think of at Good Friday time, Peter dealing with an angry crowd in the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe you remember this. He jumps into action when people come to get Jesus. He's got a sword and he's going to defend Jesus. He's eager to demonstrate his love for Jesus, but his method is pointless. Worse than that, it's not Jesus' way. That's not how Jesus did things. And worse than that, Jesus is right there. He doesn't need you to jump in and fix this. Have you seen what he is capable of, Peter? Okay, but Peter's being like me. Not following Jesus' lead, Jesus' plan, wanting to swing a sword as part of my own plan. Maybe you sometimes feel the same. Stephen is doing nothing but speaking the words God has given him while keeping his eyes fixed on Jesus. And with that Peter-Stephen distinction in mind, let's think through our response to Stephen's sermon as Luke recorded it. Okay, 
beyond the land. The religious leaders are wrong to think the land is necessary for the worship of God, okay? Stephen kind of reveals that they're thinking like pagans who had this idea of gods being tied to a particular place. And that's not what the God of the universe is all about. How do we, how do we take that? Well, here's an uncomfortable one. Our nation has a history that includes a lot of people certain that our nation's identity is tied to God. And it can be terrifying to think of a bond like that between a nation and God eroding. It can make us scared, upset. It can cause us to say, think, do things that are not going to be Christ-like. But God is a personal God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Mike, Dan, Melanie, Tim, Daryl. It gets dimmer after that. I'm not leaving you out on purpose. Don't be threatened by a culture that needs redeeming because it always did. And it always will until Christ comes and then it's going to be set. In the meantime, be looking at Jesus when you are fearful about what's going on in our culture and you've got plenty of reasons to. How many of us think beyond the land? Uh, when, I, when I was a young single guy and I bought a condo, I did not think about what church I was going to be going to when I bought the condo. And it turned out that the only church nearby was a big church that was full of baloney as far as I was concerned, and it was a desert from a church perspective. And then when Karen and I uh, got married and we lived in that place for a couple of years as married people, we were looking for something bigger, we were expecting a child, and the first thing we were looking at is how can we be closer to the church that we've been going to for a year and a half? Not because there was anything magical about that church, but that's where we were invested. That's where we were growing. That's where we were serving other people, and we wanted to be able to maintain that connection better than we had been at the place that we lived. And for a lot of years, that worked. It was great. Now, I found out a few years ago, it's even closer to Church of the Valley than it, it was to the church we were going to. So, you know, God does amazing things in opening opportunities. But I had learned from the one thing where I was just thinking about where can I afford a place, what's going to have amenities, and I was not thinking about how am I part of God's plan where I'm living. There's tons of turnover in our valley, okay? When you move, would you please look at Jesus' face when you consider the land that you're going to, okay? Whether you're moving a mile away or 5,000. All right, beyond the temple. The temple obviously didn't make Israel godly. Never happened. God doesn't need a vacation home, but something God set up to take place at the temple was the system of sacrifice, and it was a big deal for the nation of Israel. Sins were covered by the blood of animals, and that's how sins were dealt with. But in Christ, we have a new experience, and the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 9, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, that was the portable temple, that is not made with human hands, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So Jesus 
completely made the sacrifices at the temple unnecessary. And if you reacted to a driver this morning on the way to church the way I did, you ought to be grateful. I know I am not having to go get a pigeon and have a priest cut it to cover the ill feeling I had in my heart. All right, maybe you're hearing my voice. You're thinking about something you've thought or said or done that you don't think can be paid for. Maybe something a little worse than looking daggers at a a driver running a stop sign. Ah, as long as you're looking at the land, at the temple, at the law, at the right people, maybe you can't be fixed. Maybe you can't be redeemed. It's only by being friends with Jesus, becoming siblings with Jesus, by following Jesus, by loving Jesus, that we get to be freed from all that shame and guilt. And we become free not to hide our sins, but to be honest about them, without fear of condemnation from our Savior, for sure. But I pray as well without fear of condemnation from one another in this church family as we all are looking to Jesus and get a grace booster as we do. All right, beyond the law, the law clearly didn't make these Sanhedrin folks good people. It didn't put them on the right side of history as we calculated. It didn't preserve the temple or the land for their children. These people saw the destruction of their temple. If you look at today's passage and want to be anybody but Stephen, I, I, I just don't know even what to say to you. But in a letter about people wrongly fixated on the law as though it could save them, here's what Paul told the Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Man, this new law is easier to fulfill. It's easier to follow if you're relying on Jesus. Jesus only. Are you carrying somebody else's burden? Are you willing to help someone who fails and wants to be restored? Who needs you to reach out? Who needs you to reach out? All right, beyond the right people. Stephen spoke about the repeated rejection of God's redeemers by God's chosen people. And in Colossians chapter 1, here's what it says. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant." And I've been quoting Paul a ton. And so, we've got three more verses to go. Hot bonus round. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Persecution breaks out. Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. 
Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So Stephen dying doesn't end the persecution. It doesn't end the opposition. It's only the beginning. Mob action didn't flare up one day and then die out. Verse 1 says, all except the apostles were scattered throughout the region. Okay, so it's the beginning of fulfilling the step of what Jesus told the apostles as he was departing, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But they've been hanging out in Jerusalem, so now they're scattered. And notice that it's not their awesome missions programming. It's not their organizational chops. It's not their administrative skills. The church of Jesus Christ became a thing outside the city of Jerusalem because God allowed the gospel to be offense, an offense, offensive to some. God allowed its, his church in its infancy to undergo persecution to prison and then to death. What's up with that, God? Those who buried and mourned Stephen are barely mentioned before it becomes apparent that one opponent is taking a leave. Saul wasn't just carrying coats because he was a gentleman. He was there for execution by mob. He was a zealot. He was certain he had to snuff out these heretics and their fake Messiah. And God allows his church to undergo persecution at the hands of a man who will become a significant hero of the New Testament, a significant organizer of the church and church planner, a significant writer of the New Testament. In fact, this bloody-handed Saul changed into Jesus-gazing Paul, and he wrote in agreement with Stephen's message. Saul is the worst because he's so good at religion, but the religion he's good at is useless as the land and the temple and the law and the right people. So why did Saul get to deliver the message too? Because God transforms those he calls. Wherever Stephen originally came from, it was God's power and the fact that Stephen's eyes were fixed on Jesus that allowed him to have an impact on the church and to die with the grace of his Savior. Our eyes on Jesus is how we're transformed and impact the world for good. Church, there are so many distractions around you and around me. So many social movements, political actions, rights to defend, wrongs to suppress, all with our own brain power and in our own strength. But God didn't call you to a side in a conflict. He called you into a relationship with him through Jesus by the Holy Spirit's power. And next week, we're going to hear about a guy who didn't understand all that, didn't want all that, and it's sad. Looking to the sun is how Stephen accomplished God's will. Looking to the sun is how when these Christians were scattered by Saul's efforts, they didn't give up. They didn't shrug and go, I guess there wasn't anything in that. I guess that's not for me. Instead, the church expanded wherever they went, teaching others to look to the sun. All right. We're going to close out here. And so I'd like to ask Dan and Melanie to come up. And this week is the last week for cohorts for this session, and I think everybody I've heard from who's engaged in them has really enjoyed them. But we're going to take a break until past Easter, and we'll start up after that a short session of five weeks. It's going to focus on looking to the sun and encouraging others to look at the sun, right? 
All right, Pastor Tim says yes. And I, for one, long for every person in this room on the live stream, hearing the sound of my voice, to want that, to want to live in the larger truth that God's plan is bigger than mortgage rates, election cycles. It's bigger than all the secondary concerns we have. Living in God's truth helps keep us make, helps us not make secondary things primary things because we're fixed on the primary thing. I'd love to see all of us living a life following the Father's will, as Jesus said, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Let's pray. God, allow us to to love your truth when it's easy as well as when it's hard. Would you raise up our eyes to see your glory and your majesty? Would you raise our eyes up and overwhelm us with the gift of love that you show us in Jesus? Would you raise our eyes up to be amazed at Jesus's perfection instead of trying to cover over our own faults? And would you raise our eyes up and equip us to see who is around us and to love them and to teach them to raise their eyes up too? In Christ's name, amen.